Let me invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 16. So I think this is number 40 or 41. Uh, as far as sermons and Romans, we're coming into that final turn. We're going to push to the finish line. And one of the things I'm going to do on sabbatical is visit other churches. And every time I go to a church and I visit, of course, these are gospel-believing, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches, um, I always ask myself, well, what do I have to learn here? And Romans 16, the passage we'll look at today in verses 1 through 23, that's what I'll read to you. It's almost like we're visiting the church in Rome and we're seeing how they interact and we're discovering together really what God has for us as we emulate this church in Rome, which was by all counts seems to me a healthy church. And we'll talk about being a healthy church Uh, this morning. So Romans 16, beginning in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristopolis. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, all the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you there, I, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sassipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertus, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord Gaius, who is host to me, and the whole church greet you. 
Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this text, we pray, teach us, lead us, and guide us that we together might be the kind of church that gives you glory, a healthy church, one that accomplishes your will and expands and grows your kingdom all together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we visited, Tracy and I visited a little corner of Texas that not many people have been to. It's west of Del Rio, Seminole Canyon State Park. Have you ever been there? Seminole Canyon State Park. Didn't think so. A great place to visit. They have these petroglyphs there, which are uh, sort of etchings and, and paintings on caves, and they're in a limestone shelter. So some of these, these are the second oldest petroglyphs in North America. Some people date them as early as 10,000 B.C. Uh, there. So, the, you know, fascinating. Of course, Tracy and I concluded that this is actually uh, ancient graffiti from ancient teenagers uh, on the cave walls because no one can make sense of, of these petroglyphs. But one of the things that the University of Texas did is they went right up to the edge of this wall and they excavated down, the archaeologists did, to find different artifacts of the ancient people who lived there and took advantage of these limestone shelters, these caves, and they lived there and they found all kinds of artifacts and they used those artifacts to really learn about the ancient people that inhabited that part of the Rio Grande Valley. And today, we're sort of like those archaeologists. Here we are. We don't know much. Some of the names that are mentioned here are only mentioned here in Romans 16. We don't know the whole story, but we together, as God's people this morning, can put together by good and necessary inference, to borrow from our confession, we can put together the clues and we can get a portrait here of what a healthy church looks like and how a healthy church relates. And I think there's at least four qualities that emerge from this passage. Perhaps there's more, but I'm the one preaching this morning, so I get to... I get to decide, but I see at least four qualities when you put together all these names, all the different relationships, what we know about the ancient church in Rome, four qualities in, in church health. Church health, that's our priority. And what that means, the vision for that church health, is it's the kind of church you want to be part of. It's the kind of church that inspires you to walk with God. It's the kind of church that God intended for us to have. And you know what's kind of funny, you know, ironic, I guess you could say, is each year we fill out a statistical report from our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. We fill out a statistical report. How many members, how many baptisms, how much money... Uh, was given to what causes you know you know what I'm talking about this statistical report but nowhere on there are there qualities of a healthy church 
you know, you can succeed numerically, right? I mean, we're in Texas. Everything bigger is better in Texas. Eh, not necessarily when it comes to the church. Not necessarily. And so what I'm getting at is the standard methods that we would say that a church is successful are not the kinds that necessarily go on a statistical report, but they are vitally important. And certainly we would believe healthy churches grow, but it seems really in our current moment, this emphasis on celebrity pastors or flashy ministry programs really eclipses where God's people should have the emphasis, namely being a healthy church, being a healthy church. So, four qualities of a healthy church that we're drawing from this uh, passage, and there's a sermon outline if you like to follow along, and the first one is a healthy church has many people exercising their gifts. Many people... Weren't you struck by how many names were here in these verses? How many relationships those names represent and people who are busy in the church and in ministry? And the passage begins there in verse 1, and this is very countercultural for the ancient world, begins with a woman, Phoebe. And she's called a servant of the church, and that is one of the highest compliments ever because look, at, look back at uh, chapter 15, verse 8. What do we read about Jesus? For I tell you that Christ became a servant. So Jesus was a servant, and here, one chapter later, in the context of that, Paul is saying Phoebe is a servant in the church, our sister Phoebe. And so in the ancient world, women and children didn't have status or ability. And here, Christianity, understanding that both men and women, male and female, are made in the image of God, restores this dignity and highlights this dignity that God's people have. And so Phoebe is a servant of the church. And she's been a patron, we see in verse 2, a patron of many and of myself as well. And then we go on to Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And what did they do? Look at verse 4. Risk their necks for my life. We don't get the full description there of how exactly this transpired. Maybe they lived in Ephesus and you remember in Acts, there were riots in Ephesus. Maybe they sheltered the Apostle Paul from the Jews who wanted to kill him. Uh, we don't know how they risked their necks, but they did. They risked their necks for Paul's life. And he gives thanks for them there in the rest of verse 4. They have a church that meets in their house, verse 5. And we go on to see different names mentioned here, and worthy of highlight is verse 13, uh, Rufus, he's what? Chosen in the Lord. That's the description given him. You know, many people oppose the doctrine of election or predestination. Well, here it is right here. 
that's Rufus's description. I mean, I'm just supposing here, maybe Rufus was one of the uh, most unlikely convert. And so the Apostle Paul shows here that Rufus was chosen in the Lord. And then Rufus's mother, who has been a mother to me as well. You know, often the church can reparent people. If you, if you had a difficult family situation, the church is a redeemed family that can enter into your life and nurture you, just like the Apostle Paul was nurtured here by Rufus's um, mother. And we see a great degree of fellowship and affection for each other. Look at verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And as we look at the whole concentration of names here, there is a wonderful fellowship and love, a commonality. We're in this together. And you see that there as part of a healthy Church, going back to uh, one more, we read about uh, Epinatus in verse 5, the first convert to Christ in Asia. And so conversion growth, very much part of a healthy church, people getting to know the gospel. We read in verse 7 of Andronicus and Junia, who were fellow prisoners with Paul. And as it turns out, the apostle describes them as they were in Christ. This is in verse 7. They were in Christ before me. So this is not a jailhouse conversion from the apostle Paul. We know that he shared the gospel in jail, but they were in jail already as Christians and fellow prisoners with Paul, willing to undergo persecution and experience that. And when we think about, uh, and let's go on, we, we, uh, you see there's an interlude there, then we get back to the names in verse 21, Timothy, who is well known, and if you skip down to verse 23, Erastus is the city treasurer. So people came to Christ, were part of the church there, and were involved in civic roles and government. And what this tells us is that a healthy church has many people exercising their gifts, all kinds of people. From these names, we see Jews, we see Gentiles, all coming together to serve God. And we might think uh, back to Romans chapter 12, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, what? Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So this idea that, you know, we are called together as God's people to be involved in the church and to be an active part of utilizing the gifts that God has given us in ministry. Have you heard of uh, pray, the Prato Principle? The Prato Principle. Or the, it's also called the Law of the Vital Few. You might know it better as the 80-20 rule. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 80% of the people 
don't do much. They only do 20%. It shouldn't be this way in a church. It shouldn't be this way. We should all have our place and be involved in ministry. That's my encouragement to you. A healthy church is one where you don't have the 80-20 principle at work. You have 100% of the people doing 100% of the work the way that God has gifted them. We have wonderful lay leadership here at Trinity, which I appreciate, and I think that's very much part of a healthy church. And we see as well, at least in two places with regard to those who were persecuted for Christ, and then Prisca and Aquila there in verse 3, who risked their necks for my life, not only do you see a call here for being involved in serving, but you see a call to courage. Are you not emboldened by the Ukrainian people standing up to tyranny? And we would like to think that we would be that courageous. But then we think again, we won't even serve in the nursery. Or we won't even let ourselves be inconvenienced so we can volunteer for something at church. We need to rethink that. Because I would offer you this, that those who are most willing to serve, most willing to give up their time, are the most courageous when it comes to something we truly need to be active on that we can together nurture this kind of courage now by the way we serve others. Think of Jesus' words in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I want to encourage you, find a place of service here at the church. How do I do that? Go to trinityburney.org forward slash serving. And there you will see a form you can fill out. It doesn't get any easier than that. Fill out that form. And try out different areas of service and find one that you have a gift for that you enjoy that makes your heart sing. So be involved in the ministry. And then I want to go one better than that. Don't just be involved at church. Be involved in your community. Find places to serve in your community. Recently, we just had an election here at, uh, in Kendall County, and, and uh, you know, I want to be voting for some of you someday because I think you would make good civic leaders. And I want to encourage you to be involved in the community. Finally, somebody I can vote for. That's what I would probably say as I'm going to the polls. Um, but... We are called to be an active part of seeing the qualities of God's kingdom come here to earth and the kind of love and the kind of mercy, exhibiting that in a civic way that points to the gospel and points to the kind of integrity and character that Jesus Christ had. So I encourage you, be involved. Coach your kids' sports teams experience what parents are like in Bernie, Texas, out on the softball fields. Go do that and see and experience the fact that we live in a fallen world and serve. Give of your time. 
And uh, that's what a healthy church does. And you see that here in this passage. Well, not only does a healthy church have many people exercising their gifts, but a healthy church watches out for division. Look at the command here in verse 17. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. And the, the word for us, notice here, this is a command, and we need to watch out, we need to be watchful for those who would cause divisions or would teach things that are contrary to the gospel and contrary to the doctrine taught in Scripture. So we need to be watchful, proactive about that in order to maintain good relationships. Uh, we notice in the ancient world, at least, verse 18, they use smooth talk and flattery to deceive the hearts of the naive. And there is always sort of, uh, you remember prayer, the prayer of Jabez, that kind of thing going around? There's always something like that in the hopper in evangelical Christianity. And we need to be alert to that and watch out for it because it can create obstacles for people in their growth with God. So, First point, healthy church, many people exercising their gifts. Second point, healthy church watches out for division. Third point here of a healthy church is a healthy church relates well to the world. Relates well to the world. Look at verse 19. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. What is the reputation of a healthy church? What's the reputation of a healthy church? Your obedience is known to all. That's what we should be known for, in part. We should be known by our obedience, this obedience that comes from the power of the gospel at work in our life. It's because we know we are loved and precious to God and that He sent Christ for us. The resurrection power of Christ equips us to resist sin and to resist temptation and to live for Him. For your obedience is known to all. That's our reputation. And to be wise, verse 19, to be wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. So a healthy church relates well to the world with a reputation for obedience and wisdom towards what is good. In other words, understanding, practical understanding and insight over what is good. And then innocence as to what is evil. In other words, blameless. You can't pin that evil on the church because God's people are conducting themselves in a way that makes their innocence very clear. A healthy church relates well to the world. This reputation for obedience, this reputation for uh, knowing what is good and acting on it and innocence towards what is evil. You know, we still sort of live in a small town, but I can tell you in the early days when we moved here, oftentimes someone would come and visit the church, and this still sort of happens Today, although maybe on a larger scale, someone visits the church and they see someone they know in the community. And you know what they think? They think, mm, I could maybe go to church here because so-and-so is here. 
and I know they love Jesus, and I know they love God's Word and want to follow Him. You know, that happens in a church like ours, and it should, and it should continue to happen, that people would come in, and because of our reputation as a church for obedience and a reputation towards being wise towards what is good, innocent as to what is evil, people would come in. Your obedience to God matters then. And the actions that you take and the things that you say and the things you write on social media, those matter and they add up together in terms of our reputation with the world. So we want to relate well to the world. And to relate well to the world, we see that's something the Roman church did in their reputation for obedience and then in their wisdom towards what is good and innocence towards what is evil. So we've looked at three of the four qualities that we can infer from this passage. As archaeologists sifting through these clues, we see that a healthy church has many people exercising their gifts, watches out for division, relates well to the world. And one more point, and I think this is especially relevant to us. A healthy church is confident of Christ's triumph. And we see that in verse 20. What do we read there? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Soon there that's a, chron- uh, a word that connotes a certain chronology, a temporal sense that this will soon happen. And as well, we see in that passage, that verse, that there's an assurance that this, in point of fact, will take place, and it will take place by a God who is the God of peace. In other words, He's the God of peace because in order to bring peace, He has to destroy all His and our enemies. And he will do it, and it is not difficult for him. And this verse alludes to Genesis 3.15, where we read of the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15 is the first pronouncement of the gospel. We read that the seed of the woman uh, will crush the head of the serpent. He will strike your heel, a non-mortal blow that we understand Christ fulfilled Genesis 3.15 on the cross but he will strike your head. God pronounces to the serpent a mortal blow there in Genesis 3.15. So this is the fulfillment of what God has promised. And if anything, I notice Christians are a little iffy on this idea today. We tend to be, and I've mentioned this before, chicken little Christians. Oh, the sky is falling. Oh, there's, there's wars and rumors of wars. Well, Jesus told us there would be. He said, in this world, you will have what? Peace, comfort, and good health, and you'll die in your sleep someday. In this world, you will have tribulation, a word for suffering. But he also says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. 
We need confidence as Christians to know we are always and forever, if we are in Christ, we're on the winning side. And the assurance and the confidence we have of that victory comes from the fact that this God of peace, He who has reconciled sinners with a holy God, will soon, it is imminent, will soon crush Satan under our feet. He will utilize us. He will utilize His church. He will utilize believers to accomplish His will in defeating His enemies. And that is a reason we should have confidence. Have you ever watched the end of a basketball game? I'm sure at some point you have watched the end of a basketball game. I find it totally annoying because if the score is close, what happens? If the score's close and the other team, they keep fouling the other team and then those guys go to the line and if they make their free throws, the score just keeps going up. And, and you know how this goes, and they inbound the ball, and as soon as the ball's inbounded, they foul the guy, and then he goes to the line. And again, if he sinks his free throws, the score continues to go out of reach, and the inevitable ha- happens, victory. And while annoying, I think it is a picture, really, of the victory of Jesus Christ. And what do I mean by that? I mean the ball is inbounded, if you will, in this analogy to our Savior who never misses a free throw. It is always in the basket for him. And every time Satan fouls him or fouls us or you feel the effects of the fall, our Savior goes to the line for us, ensuring a victory. We need to understand, to know, to apprehend deep within our heart that we are on the winning side. And verse 20 reminds us the outcome of the situation. Though we may not have the foreknowledge, though we may not understand or be able to predict the pathway, we can have faith that He will accomplish the victory and that we will in Him win every time. Every time. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Is it because we try hard or we're well organized or we can administrate things well or we have a big fancy church or uh, we have somebody in the pulpit and, and his reputation that, do, you know, the most powerful reputation of a pastor in evangelical, uh, the evangelical world today, the, the, the highest compliment you can pay that dude is hilarious. That's terrible, isn't it? That dude is hilarious is not about crushing Satan under our feet. And yet, God can do it. God can do it with the weakest of churches by his power because why? Look at the end of verse 20. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
by grace we will triumph. So let us have confidence as his people, even in the midst of wars and rumors of wars, and let us together strive to be not necessarily a big church, not necessarily even a successful church, but to be a healthy one where many people are exercising their gifts, where we watch out for division, where we relate well to the world, and where we know deep within our hearts we are confident of Christ's triumph. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to be, to continue to be a healthy church. Would you give us your grace to be confident in every way of Christ's triumph, that he who left the grave empty will not leave us without hope or help. And we pray that together as we struggle through this life and the effects of the fall in our life, that we would have spiritual courage as we serve and give our lives away, as we relate well to the world, and as we mirror the triumph of Jesus Christ and all that he's accomplished. We pray your blessing on this, your body, Trinity, and we pray your blessing on the church, all churches that hold Jesus Christ dear and proclaim the hope of the gospel. We pray cause your churches to be revitalized, renewed, and to prosper your way, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.